God, speak. Speak into our environment, into our ears, into our hearts. Penetrate our thick skulls, our dull hearts, our deaf ears. By your Spirit, open us to hear what you have said, that we might see things as you want, that we might understand your word as you've given it, that we might know we have heard from Almighty today. And give us faith to walk in response to that. Thank you that you've graciously given us your word. We're so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. How comfortable are you speaking on behalf of God? I know there are a lot of preachers who are very comfortable speaking on behalf of God. They open up the Bible a little bit and... An interesting thought comes into their mind. They're captivated by their own ingenious thought, and so they stand up and they share their thoughts, propped up maybe with a Bible verse. I know there's a lot of Christian authors who are comfortable speaking on behalf of God. I don't. If people are really uh, cautious about that, I'm not sure our Christian bookstores would be filled with nearly as many books about the latest idea somebody has that's just what you need to hear for your life. I think a lot of Christians are pretty comfortable speaking on behalf of God. God told me to do this. God led me to do this. I heard God say to me, Some time ago, I was having a conversation with someone this congregation had commended for the office of elder. And the man had come to me because he was uneasy about whether he should take that role. And his concern was that he didn't want to lead the church in a way that was not right. That wasn't the way God would want it to go. And his concern was, though from my perspective he knew the Bible quite well, his concern was whether he knew the Bible well enough to be able to say, I know that this is what God wants for our church. Though he was coming to me with a concern, the impression that was left with me is this is the very kind of man we need leading our church. You see, I think too many Christians today are very comfortable speaking on behalf of God when it's really just the thoughts and ideas of their own mind. But really, that's just the symptom of a deeper problem. The root cause behind this symptom is, to use the language of Job chapter 13, the majesty of God does not terrify us. Think about it. The God who just by speaking words strung the planets and the stars and the solar systems into space, created our solar system, our earth, every cell in our body, every plant and species of the earth, just by speaking words. 
The God who says that one day He will come and every one of us will stand before Him for judgment. To either be allowed to enter into His eternally good kingdom where everything is right and whole or to be condemned justly. To enter into an existence that's eternal, totally devoid of God's goodness and all of the wickedness of this world in one place. Do we grasp this God and live in light of this robust, powerful, strong, mighty God? The question before us this morning is what is our view of God? Do we have a diminished view of God or do we have a rich, robust view of God? And that is the question on hand in Job chapter 13. Now, if you've been following along with us, you know that uh, Job chapter 13 is, in, is situated between chapter chapter 4 and 26, which is a longer section in Job, kind of the, bulk, the big section of Job, where Job is interacting with his three friends. So a friend speaks, Job responds. Friend speaks, Job responds. Third friend speaks, Job responds. Round one. And there's round two and round three. This comes at the end of round one. So this is Job's third response to his friends. And chapter 13 is actually part of a wider response. This third response that Job gives, the end of round one, is the longest response Job gives to his friends in all of the book of Job. So it actually spans from chapter 12, chapter 13, and on into chapter 14. It's three chapters long. Our chapter specifically, in our chapter specifically, Job is taking his friends to task. In verses 1 through 19, he is laying into his friends and exposing them for the the failure of of the advice they've given him. And then, in verses 20 through 28, Job speaks to God. Now, it is in the critique of his friend's counsel, verses 1 to 19, that we see the failure of their diminished view of God. So 1 through 19, the critique of his friends, is the failure of a diminished view of God. And then it's in his own words to God, verses 20 to 28, that we see the triumph of his robust view of God. So verses 20 through 28, he's speaking to God. We see the triumph of a robust view of God. So let's look first at his critique of his friends counsel. Now what Job has to say to them in 1 through 19, it's really just kind of one whole unit. It's the same thought throughout, and you'll see it as we go. So for instance, look at verses 5 and 6. Listen to what he tells them. Oh, that you would, be, oh, that you would keep silent, and that would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument and listening to the pleadings of my lips. So you guys need to be quiet. You've given enough counsel. Quiet. Listen to me, he says in 5 and 6. Then look at verse 13. Let me have silence, and I will speak, and let come on me what may. You see, he's saying the same thing. You guys be quiet. Give me a chance to talk. And then again, verses 17 to 19. 
Keep listening to my words and let my declarations be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and then die. In other words, he says, look, you guys haven't been able to answer anything I've been saying. I know now that I'm in the right. So just listen to what I'm saying for once and, and quit trying to argue me because you're not getting anywhere. Right? He's saying the same thing throughout. You guys be quiet. Listen to me. But he also says something else. Look at verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. He's so fed up with the counsel of his friends that's so empty and bankrupt. He's saying, I just want to move on from this, and I want to be able to have God as my audience. I want to talk to him. And then you see that again in verses 15 to 16. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. In other words, I want, I want to be able to stand innocent before him and have a conversation with him, right? So his friends, bankrupt counsel, ah, quiet. Listen to me for a second and... More importantly, I want to speak to God. That's what he's saying in verses 1 to 19. Why is it? What's the issue? What is the issue with his friend's counsel? What is the problem with it? Again, he is consistent throughout these 19 verses. So look at verse 4. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Or verse 12, your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. In other words, the core issue is they're saying things that just don't hold water. They're full of holes. It's clear that they're trying to take something that's just lies and whitewash it. They're worthless physicians. But in verses 7 to 8, we really see that the root issue behind what's going on. And he's through a series of questions that he asks them. He says, will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God. Do you see what he's saying that they do? They, they claim to be speaking on behalf of God, and yet they're saying things that aren't true. And he says your bias is you're, you're trying to actually show favoritism to God. You're trying to be partial to God. Say what he, you think he's going to want you to say, but it's not birthed from something that's genuine and true. What, what, what does he have in mind here? What kind of counsel does he have in mind? Well, one of the things his friends have been doing, they've been accusing him of heinous sins. Remember, they have a, a, an ironclad mechanical equation in their mind. If you have horrible suffering, it means you're a horrible sinner. So because Job has had this horrible suffering, he must be a horrible sinner. And so they've been leveling these charges against him. But we know from the book of Job that that's That's not the case at all. Job isn't a horrible sinner. God commends his righteousness. 
And so they're saying things as if, hey, we're representing God, and because of the suffering, you must be really bad. But those are lies. They're not true. They're, they're trying to take God's side in the matter, but in doing that, they're actually being deceitful. They're saying things that aren't true. But I think there's another level of what's going on here. Because in these accusations, he seems to indicate that they know what they're doing. It's not just a theological system that they, they are really conscious of. There's something that they, there seems to be a hint here that they actually know they're being disingenuous. Right? Someone who whitewashes lies knows they're covering over those things. He's saying, do you think you can trick God like you can trick men? Remember that over and over they've been calling on Job to repent. They say, all right, the reason these bad things are happening to you is because you're a really bad sinner. So if you repent, these bad things will stop happening to you. Now, if they were calling for a really genuine, heartfelt repentance towards God, I think that'd be a good thing. It's always good to genuinely repent before God. But remember, they're saying, they're calling on Job to do this when he still isn't even acknowledging that he's a sinner. I mean, they, he acknowledges he's a sinner in general, but not the kind of sinner they're describing. So what they're asking him to do is to play God, to manipulate God. They're saying, look, here's what God wants. God just wants you to repent to him, and then you can get what you want which is to have all your stuff back. So if if you'll just do what God wants, go through the motions, do your little repentance to God, you'll get your stuff back. They're calling for a disingenuine repentance before God. And I think that's at the the heart of why he's calling uh, calling them people who, who speak deceitfully before God and yet are showing partiality to him, right? So they're saying you can trick God. You, You can give God what he wants. And then you get what you want. But the the issue is, the friends are completely wrong about what Job Job wants. He knows you can't trick God. God knows what's going on in your heart. You can't just feign repentance. It has to be from your heart. And Job also knows that what he wants more than anything isn't to get his stuff back. Remember at the beginning when it was all taken away, what did he say? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked I came into the world, naked I'll return. He doesn't have a problem. I mean, it's painful. It hurts him a lot that he's lost everything. But that's not his end. That's not his, his end. That's not what he's aiming for. What he wants most of all is to be right with God. So they've missed it entirely. And their counsel is bankrupt. He calls them worthless physicians. There are a lot of uh, smart women in our church. One of the women who uh, is particularly smart is Heather Stewart. She's going to feel, she's going to, where is she? She's going to hate me later for saying this. But uh, she's really smart. If you've ever talked to her, you know she's smart. Not because she comes across that way. She's really down to earth. But imagine she decided she was going to start dispensing medicine and doing surgery. She put a little office in town, Dr. Stewart. But she hadn't had any of the training. 
She hadn't gone through any of the schooling you're supposed to go through. No matter how smart she is, no matter how good she is, you would realize she's a total fraud if she did something like that. Right? And yet, that's what so many Christians today do. We dispense medicine. We do the surgery. Just because we're pretty smart. We got good ideas. Instead of having really been trained by God's word to know what God wants. Maybe in some way we know some Bible verse over here and we, we tack it on to our advice that we're giving. But in the sense of really wrestling with God's word and saying, is this what God has said? And in our soul, with our mind, engaging what's here and trying to say, is this, Lord, what you are telling me? Is this the kind of counsel you would have me say? We haven't done it. And so... We're dispensing fraudulent medicine. And do you know what? The world can tell that it's a fraud. I know some of you who are here are not followers of Christ at this point. And maybe you've heard this kind of glib, gobbly gook, and it's turned you off to religion. You say, okay, If that's what Christianity is, I can see right through it. Can I say two things to you? One is, don't reject good medicine just because there are those who dispense fraudulent medicine. And the second thing I want to say to you is keep coming here to Maple Avenue. Now, I'm a human being. I'm going to make mistakes. There's going to be things I say about the Bible that aren't right, or I'm not going to get it exactly right on occasion. But I will make this commitment to you. My intention each week is to wrestle and wrestle with the text of God's Word. So that when you come here, you're hearing what God has said in His Word hopefully not contaminated by my own wisdom. And that way God's word can be its own apologetic to you. It'll either prove itself right as God's word as you hear it week after week, or you realize it's not God's word. But it's not because you're rejecting what I've said, but because you'll have wrestled with what's here. But why do people do this? Why do people dispense fraudulent medicine? Why are people so willing to speak on behalf of God without really grappling with what he has said? With what he has said. I've had the occasion on a, I've had a couple of occasions where I was able to travel to Vietnam. Traffic in Vietnam is something if you haven't experienced it. It is unlike anything. They have, they have, everyone travels on a motorbike. And it's literally like a river of motorbikes. I mean, river or motorbikes as far as you can see on either side. They'll come to an intersection, two main arteries, and they have a nice stoplight there. That means absolutely nothing. 
they just all go. And they work their way, they slow down, and they all just work their way through and eventually get through. If you're crossing the street in Vietnam in the sea of motorbikes, you don't wait for a break in the action because you'll just be standing there. You just start walking, and you have faith that they'll see you and move around you. And what they tell you is don't stop. That's when you throw people off because they're expecting you to move. So different than North American traffic. What's the difference? Why are the traffic laws followed and obeyed in North America and not in Vietnam? It's because there is no fear of the authorities. I don't, I don't mean that. Now, in Vietnam, there actually is a lot of fear of the authorities. Corrupt authorities, sometimes people abuse their power. There's a certain kind of fear. But as it relates to their traffic, they don't have a regard for the fact no one's enforcing the traffic laws. If no one's going to enforce it, it's not this power, I don't need to be aware of it, I'm not scared of it, right? But in North America, we know there might be a police officer around the corner when I blow through that red light or when I go over that speed limit. And we have a, like, in general, I think if we looked in this room, we would have a very favorable view of police officers, We know they're good. We trust them. But when you see the flashing lights in the rearview mirror, it's not like you have these warm feelings toward them, right? (laughs) There's a certain reverence and fear. That's That's a right reverence and fear that the authority has because they have power. And power in North America that they use for good. And you realize these are good rules. And we function better when we follow them. So there's, there's a reverence for God. The core issue for why we're willing to speak like this so lightly about God and what he said is that there is no fear of God. That's exactly what Job says. Look at verse 11. He says, You who... who who are so willing to speak on behalf of God, lies. He says, Will not His majesty terrify you and the dread of Him fall upon you? Too many today, like Job's friends, have a diminished view of God. Perhaps we give some sort of lip service. Oh yes, he's the all-powerful. Yes, he is our ultimate judge. Yes, he's our savior. But we have a diminished view of God. Maybe it's like almost like we're play actors in our own play. So we've created this world, this religious world where there's a God and I walk through life. But, but there's no connection really deep into our core, into our soul, that there is a God who is all this that we say he is. That's really the core issue, isn't it? And what is the result of this kind of diminished view of God? Well, as you read through Job, It's like the footing that his friends are on is just giving way beneath them. 
The earth is opening up and swallowing them before our eyes. The bankruptcy of this kind of approach, this diminished view of God, is being exposed for all. I mean, here's Job in such need, and his friends become the very most most poignant source of his agony. And he ends up rejecting their counsel altogether, those who are the aged ones who gather around him, who he sought to take comfort in. And it's not just Job who has that analysis. As you read it and over and over again, you know he's righteous and you hear him saying the things they say. You just see it all fall apart. And at the end, God rebukes them. And that's, that's what Job says will happen, right? So there it is. Right in verse 10. He will surely rebuke you. If in secret you show partiality. That's why, that's why Job says, it's better for you just be quiet. You need to listen to me, not because I have all the wisdom. He'll be clear throughout Job. He doesn't have all the wisdom. Better for you to listen to me because at least I can poke some holes in the bankruptcy of what you're selling. And it's why he steps back and says, I just want to talk to God. Get this worthless counsel. Get these fraudulent doctors out of here. I just want to talk to God. And that's what he does in verses 20 through 28. He speaks to God. So if 1 through 19 show us the failure of a deficient view of God or a diminished view of God. Verses 20 through 28 show us the triumph of Job's robust view of God. Now, again, if you've been tracking with us through our series in Job, you know what Job's view of God is. Do you remember in chapter 9? We likened it to a hurricane. God is a hurricane. He's this strong, mighty power that's turned against Job, and Job knows he has no strength against it. He cannot contend against it. And so in chapter 9, he's entirely hopeless. But he does view God in this strong, robust, powerful way. And you see traces of that same kind of hurricane theology in this passage, right? Will you frighten a driven leaf? Verse 25, and pursue dry chaff. 26, for you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. Do you see that same kind of, I'm I'm a helpless, I'm helpless in the midst of this onslaught that's way too strong for me. But he has a keen sense of God's bigness. That's why at the very beginning in chapter 1, Job is commended because he fears the Lord. And that's what the Lord says. That's what God says to Satan, the accuser. He says, do you see my servant who fears me? Job gets how big God is. And at the first, he just cowers and bows in front of it. I give up. I throw up my hands. But as he leans in to this strong and mighty God, And we'll see this as we move through these speeches. He gains greater and greater strength 
and confidence. He moves towards health. And we see some of the first glimmers of that here. I don't know if you're a reader or not. I don't know what kind of reader you are. But there are certain books that I read. Maybe they were recommended to me. Maybe it's on a topic I think would be good. Maybe I was just intrigued by the title or the cover, right? And you start reading it, and you realize, like, it's just a poorly written, flat book. And you just kind of push it away. But then there are other books. Maybe it takes some time to get into them. But as you read them, their richness... The profound nature of these books draws you in. And the, and the harder you push into these books, the more you get back. You can go back and read them again a year or two or several years later. And you're finding new things and you're discovering it in new ways. Job's friends have been on one of those flimsy books. Yeah, it looks good. And then you step into it and it's just nothing. But, God, but Job is pushing into this, this rich, vibrant, literary work. And as he presses into it, at first it's hard. It doesn't seem like this is the easy way. Brothers Dostoevsky, take some time. But then as he, as he steps into it, you're finding this is good. And the more he pushes into this robust view of God, the more meaningful, the more stable, more healthy he becomes. So look at a few of these glimmers of hope. First, in verses 15 to 16, before he's even speaking to God. He begins, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Now, I know there's two different ways to translate that, so your translation may may say, say something a little different. The idea is basically, look, I might be dead. What God's doing to me right now might end in my death. But the next line is the important one, yet... I will argue my ways to his face. You see that confidence he has? Look, even if he pours out his wrath to the point that I die, I still am going to be able to stand before him. Glimmer of hope. Before he was saying, I can't even talk to you. If I did talk to you, he wouldn't even listen. Now he's saying, even though he might kill me in this earth, I'll still stand before him. And what he says next is really profound. Verse 16, This will be my salvation or my deliverance or my vindication that the godless shall not come before him. In other words, I'm going to be able to stand up and speak to him and that's going to be my vindication. That will show to all my friends that I actually was in the right to begin with because God won't allow someone who's sinful to stand in God's presence And so the fact that I'm able to argue my case will show that I'm in the right. So he has this confidence that God, even though he's pouring out all this upon him, will ultimately be just on the final day. That's his his confidence. This robust view of God. And look at verse 20. He says, Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Now, the same two things he's going to say here, the the, the two things he says here are the same two things that he said in chapter 9. Withdraw your hand from me, 
and let not dread of you terrify me. So he's still asking God for the same things. Like, just let up a bit. Let me not be scared to death of you. But before, he said it to his friends. In chapter 9, he said it to his friends, and he said in a way like, God's not going to do this. That's why I'm not taking it up with him. But now, he says it to God. And he says it with a sense of expectation. I might actually be talking to you. Do you see how there's these shifts, this development in how Job thinks? I talked about Job's friends walking on ground that's giving way before them. It's just caving and they're falling into it. As Job walks on the, on the rich, massive stones that would represent God, it's, it's, it's tricky climbing at first. But the more he climbs, the more stable his footing becomes. And you see these glimmers of hope. Then what does Job do? Verses 23 through 25. He says, God, we need to figure these things out. Help me see where I have sinned. I want you to show me those things. Obviously, I don't see things like my friends do, or there's some horrible, heinous sin that's caused this, but I do want you, I want you to be able to expose my sin to me. But then verse 24. Why? Why are you doing this, God? And the fact that he frames verse 25 as a question, I think shows that there's something, he's like, this doesn't add up. This is not your character. You're not the type of guy who would hide or would frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff. So, so why, why is this happening? You compare that to Job's friends. Job's friends say, yeah, play God. Manipulate him. Tell him what he wants to hear. Give him what he wants and you'll get what you want. Job says, no. I want to be right with God. So I'm not just going to play games with him. I'm going to ask him some questions. Help me get to the bottom. I don't understand what's going on, God. Help me get to the bottom of it. Show me my heart. Show me why you're doing this. This doesn't seem like your character. What's going on with that? I'm going to ask him some hard questions. Maybe you have friendships that are just kind of light friendships or acquaintances. Maybe it's a working relationship or something like that. And you do something that offends that person at some level. And you feel like, you know what? I'm not going to make a big deal of it. I'll just tell them I'm sorry. Move on. You don't really feel like they see it right. But it's just patch it over. Keep going. But when there's someone who really matters to you, who you really value, and you have some sort of conflict, you work hard, don't you, to resolve that conflict, to get to the bottom of it. Maybe you don't, but you know that's what you should do, right? You at least know that's the right course. Because when you really value a friendship, you don't just patch over things and act like nothing happened. You want to get to the bottom of it so you can truly be right with one another. That's what Job wants. He values God. He sees God in all his glory and all his splendor. And he values more than all, more than anything, a right relationship with him. And so he's saying, God, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's figure this thing out so there can be peace between us again. Now, we know 
we know that there isn't any problem between God and Job. God isn't judging Job. Job doesn't know that. And so it's what seems to be, in his perspective, a distance. But that's what he wants. He wants that healed. And so he's asking questions that get to the bottom of that. When you see just these eight verses, I said it's the triumph of a robust view of God. In a certain sense, it's not the triumph yet. We don't get there until the end of Job. But even in these just little glimmers of the the more sure footing that Job is now on compared to his friends, there is a sense where we see the triumph already. And so, 1 through 19, the failure of a diminished view of God. Verses 20 through 28, the triumph of a robust view of God. But it shouldn't surprise us in the book of Job that it's not quite that simple. Did you notice what Job said in verse 2? What started this all off? He says, what you know, friends, I also know. What does he also know that they already know? Well, you have to go back to Zophar's speech in chapter 11, the one he's responding to, and look at verses 7 through 10. Listen to Zophar's words. Listen to his words. Now, this is just an excerpt. It's a bit out of context, but listen to his words. Zophar says to Job, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Is it, it is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through it in prisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? Wait a second, James. That's the very thing you've been saying Job has, this robust view of God, and his friends don't have. And yet his friends are saying the very thing you're saying Job's right for saying. Job's friends at times speak as if they believe in this big, robust God. And, if you look closely... Sometimes Job says things that aren't true about God. There's almost a sense that at times he views God as kind of like this cosmic ogre in the sky whose sole job it is is to make his life miserable, which is a false view of God. It's more than just our words. That's why I said that's just a symptom. The core issue is our hearts. Job's friends, they go through the little play that they're play-acting. Oh, yes, we believe in a mighty God, a vast God. Yes, yes, yes. But His majesty doesn't terrify them. At their core being, they don't really believe that. And Job, he misspeaks here and there. He says some things that aren't quite right about God. But in his core heart, he views God in all his majesty and he quakes before him. He has a right 
fear of God. I think most of us in this room would give lip service to what a mighty God we serve. But where are we in our hearts? What is our true view of God? This has been a really convicting passage for me to be in this week. I mean, I know, I know what a big God I serve. In fact, that's why I preach the way I preach. Like, those, convictionally, that's where I am. But do I really grasp the majesty of God? Here's the thing. The answer to a question of how we view God isn't a binary thing. Yes, I view God as mighty. No, I don't. Probably in every one of our hearts, there's a sense that we we don't grasp God and His majesty in the way we should. We all probably have some repenting to do and some growing to do. And the last thing I want this sermon to do is to make you feel handcuffed until I have a completely right view of God and I'm completely viewing His majesty rightly and until I completely know the Word of God so well that I could never speak except for that it's exactly what God has said then I should never speak and I should never do anything. I don't want you feeling that way and certainly God doesn't want you as you read the rest of Scriptures feeling that way. So what do we do? We lean in to that robust view of God. Where we find ourselves lacking, we repent genuinely, saying, God, I know that's not right. Help change my heart. And when we speak, we're always examining what we're saying. Is this really what God said? Knowing, hey, I'm going to make some mistakes, but, but wrestling is the counsel. Are the things I teach my children or my grandchildren or say to my friends or my coworkers or write to someone who's going through a hard time, are those things really things that God has said? Have we wrestled with God's word on those matters? But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we know we don't stand before God as righteous. And that's where we look to Jesus. Whose sacrifice on our behalf that we're celebrating this week covers over our sins and allows us to stand righteous before God, not because we've gotten it all right, but because we put our faith in Jesus. So repent of our wrong views of God. Press into the right ways we're seeing Him in His majesty. Keep speaking truth, but always checking it against God's Word. And relish the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all our sins. Let's pray. Father, help us to fear you. Help us to see our smallness and your bigness. Not fear as in fear of some bully but a right fear where we see your government is good and is worthy of obedience. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.